Preferred Shares is a podcast started by three guys interested in business, history, and business history. We follow our interests and go down the rabbit holes of current and bygone topics. We'll talk about individual companies, product wars, famous founders, forgotten failures, and anything else that strikes our fancy. To find our episodes and show notes, please visit our website at preferredsharespodcast.com. The hosts for the podcast are Devin Lassar, Douglas Ott, and Lawrence Hamptel. Devin is a private investor with a background in design and brand development and is the author of The Invariant Newsletter. Douglas is a founder and chief investment officer at Anvari Associates, a registered investment advisor. Lawrence is a co-founder and principal at Fortune Financial Advisors, also a registered advisor. All opinions expressed by the podcast hosts and guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of their respective employers. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Anvari and Fortune Financial may have positions in any of the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Preferred Shares podcast. This is part two of our series on Simplicity Pattern, the paper pattern maker that made it into the Nifty 50 group of stocks. To remind you, we ended part one in 1970 with Bristol Myers offering to buy Simplicity for $450 million, which was 51 times its prior year earnings. Simplicity turned the offer down. Now, to provide some context, remind you about the valuation. Here's some market caps for some more well-known companies during the same period. Bristol Myers had a market cap of $2.1 billion. McDonald's market cap at the time was $550 million, only $100 million more than the offer price for Simplicity. Disney's market cap was $1 billion, and P&G's market cap was $4.5. Anyways, Simplicity turned down the deal and actually continued to do pretty well for the next few years, steadily maintaining its P.E. ratio in the 40s and 50s and operating margins in the 20s and even nearly hitting 30% in 1971. And we have this fantastic article, this Forbes article from 1973, and Lawrence is going to share some quotes and thoughts on it. Yeah, Devin. So what's interesting about this article is it's obviously contemporaneous with what is going on uh, during the Nifty 50 period. But what's what's so unique about this article is that it was actually questioning the valuation of the stock. So the article begins, everybody's got troubles. James Shapiro's trouble is that his company has too much money. Simplicity Pattern Company has capital of just over $70 million, of which more than one-third is cash. The article goes on to talk about how the Shapiro family is still running the company, but they don't actually have much ownership in it, which they kind of took as a good thing back then, showing that they had unaffiliated ownership, so to speak, or at least that their incentive was, was not maybe distorted by their ownership. But in any event, the article goes on to talk about this cash position, which was substantial. Devin referenced their market cap, so relative to their total market value, this cash position of, of $70 million was substantial. And the article asks, if Simplicity has no way to invest at surplus earnings, how come the stock is selling at 45 times earnings? How can a company with only $70 million in capital and with limited growth prospects possibly be worth $729 million? 
And I think it's it's kind of interesting too to look back at the Bristol Myers transaction that never came about. And just relative to the valuation of those two companies, we talk about Simplicity was trading at 50 times earnings. Bristol Myers was around 25 times earnings. So that's sort of unique when the the cheaper companies going after the more expensive company. But you have to wonder what Bristol Myers was thinking when the news media was was writing these articles in real time saying, hey, this company doesn't really have a lot of growth prospects. It's definitely cash rich, but how is it going to deploy all this cash? And I, I guess that was a question that never really got answered. No, and to remind you guys, I think this was the go-go years of conglomerates beginning to form and older industries starting to... What's the word? Uh, Diversify into other industries. And so Bristol apparently wanted to diversify. And when they made that offer to remind our listeners in in 1970, Simplicity had come off uh, three years in a row of growing revenues, I think over 20% each year the prior three years. So obviously they thought that it would continue to grow at a rapid rate, um, which it did. Uh, not quite in the 20% annual range, but more in the teens. Um, but eventually, growth would hit a wall, and that would be the year 1973 is when Simplicity's share price hit its all-time high. But unbeknownst to management and shareholders, that was the year it reached its peak and would be the beginning of the end of the growth era for Simplicity. And the Forbes article we just talked about said that no takeover artist would ever be interested in paying 600, 700 million to get 30 million in cash and 100 million in revenues and 15 million in net profits. I mean, it's a good good financial characteristics of an acquisition, but the the timing of the Forbes article that Lawrence was talking about is pretty amazing and how close it was to Simplicity's all-time high share price. And from the end of 1973, the price would fall from a high of $59 per share to a low of $6 per share in 1974, a decline of about 90% in a very brief period of time, uh, reminding us all again, you know, these uh, declines happens very frequently and throughout all of financial history. I mean, we've seen probably dozens and dozens of companies in the recent year or two decline by similar amounts. So anyways, revenues for Simplicity went down from its all-time high of $107 million to about $89.5 million in 1974. That was a decline of 17%. Revenues rebounded a little in 75, but from there on out, they would be declining by about 5 to 10% a year on average. So after that big slide in 74, the company did try to shake up things a little bit, and they hired um, what I think was the first outsider to help run the company. They hired a woman by the name of Mary Joan Glynn. She was a 45-year-old vice president of communications at Bloomingdale's at the time, but her tenure was short-lived. She resigned after just six months in the seat due to, quote, a difference in management philosophies. James Shapiro, the the CEO of Simplicity, would retake the reins of leadership after she resigned, but James himself would soon be forced to retire due to hitting the maximum age limit of service. But 
the board of directors of Simplicity hired him to stay on for another two years and uh, gave him a hefty salary of about 200000 per year so he could find and train the next generation management team to run the company. And it's around this time in the, in the mid-70s where we start to see a few articles that shed some light on what things were like at Simplicity. First, we already know that Shapiro had very little skin in the game. Uh, the Shapiro family had sold most of their holdings out, uh, I think it was 1950, and they retained a kind of a nominal stake of 1% to 2% of shares outstanding of the company. We also learned that he had an authoritarian management structure. There was only one man who called the shots, and that was James. We also saw that James disdained the typical business practices like setting budgets, doing long-range planning, market research. Three-hour lunches were common among Simplicity staff, and the company also had a very high-handed way of dealing with their retail customers who were dependent upon Simplicity's patterns to sell their fabrics. And just the whole situation reeked of hubris to me. To give you some more details on the relationship Simplicity had with their retail customers, here are some interesting details on, on how that relationship actually worked in practice. First and, and most important, the, the retailers signed a contract that required them to buy a stated number of units. And when that stock was depleted, there was an automatic reordering and the retailer could return unsold patterns, but it must maintain a contractual unit level. And in some cases, as much as 85% of patterns in the stores don't sell. So the average turn on pattern inventory was less than one time a year. And the retailer, if they wanted to return anything, they were charged freight charges and they were also charged for catalogs and they had to have minimum orders of throwaway leaflets and other promotional material for customers. And remember again, this in the mid 70s, there was high inflation mid-teen inflation rates during this period of time. And this compounded the problem of the retailers when they were basically obliged to carry all the major pattern lines, not just Simplicity's, but Butterick and McCall and Vogue patterns. A large fabric store could have as much as 20000 a year tied up in pattern inventory, of which only a small percentage actually sold. So this is not a good set situation to have such a high amount of working capital when uh, you can earn 15% in a savings account at the time. I was going to ask you, Doug, real, real quick, uh, just thinking about this, though, from what we said in episode one, that Simplicity got its start really in the 30s, a tough economic environment, and in no small part because of how well they treated their customers. And now here we are 40 years later in another tough economic environment, but their treatment has gone the opposite, where they're sort of taking them for granted. And so it's sort of like what helped them get to the top. Uh, they lost track of that. And now it's part of their undoing. Yes, I totally agree with that. And again, hubris, you know, you go for so you're successful for so long and you grab 50% of the market. And you know, it seems likely that a company is going to forget eventually what made them successful in the first place. It, right. In Simplicity's case, like you said, it got started in 1927 and it took 50 years or so to get to the point where they are mistreating their retailer customers and also you know, they're raising the price of their patterns 20% year over year during this time frame. Retailer customers and the end user, the home sewer 
themselves were feeling the pain and the pinch during this period of time. It's not necessarily a good combination for a, a company or an industry with negligible switching costs. But this also can segue nicely into a conversation on on why sales were declining in this period. And there were several trends that were going against simplicity, right? One of the one of the big ones was just a more casual taste in fashion. Simplicity got started off with dress patterns and guess which fashion item had become more popular during the sixties and seventies? It's the jeans and t-shirts. Right. And uh, those are those are things that are not I guess they could be sewn, but they're relatively cheaper and you probably want the Levi's brand showing somewhere on your jeans at the time if you're a teenager or college age student. Second big trend was the simple fact that more and more women were entering the workforce and had less time to sew at home. This is even even though the so the savings still were pretty high. It's 50% savings versus ready-made clothes at the time. And then finally, another another big thing that simplicity in the industry itself used for promotional purposes were home ec classes, uh, teaching people how to sew while they are in school. More and more home ec classes were either being dropped entirely or the home sewing component uh, was being dropped from the home ec classes. So that was not helpful. So those are the big trends going against simplicity and causing sales to stagnate and decline. Now it's 1976. James Shapiro finally retired from the company and longtime employee Hal Cooper was promoted to lead the company. And we'll soon see that through either a combination of an inability to allocate capital or just plain incompetence, Simplicity was never able to invest its cash by making an acquisition of another company. And it just continued to pile and pile up on the balance sheet. And with a market cap that was about 140 million in the late 70s and cash of 60 million and continuing to grow, Simplicity was finally catching the attention of corporate raiders and takeover artists. This is the beginning of the corporate raider era of simplicity. And it really starts off in 1979 and lasted through the late 80s. And we have a great infographic with a lot more details on this period of time, but I'm just going to summarize as briefly as I can all the interesting names that got involved with either the stock itself or acquiring and selling simplicity. And it changed hands multiple times over there. The ensuing decades. But anyways. Yeah, make sure you check out the show notes for, for Doug's graphics on that. Yeah, it'll be in the show notes for sure. So anyways, the first corporate raider was a man by the name of Victor Posner, who accumulated an 11.4% stake in the company and flipped it in 1981 to another company, a public company based in the UK called NCC Energy. NCC soon after tried to acquire Simplicity for somewhere in the range of $13 to $14 per share. But this catches the attention of Carl Icahn, who thought that offer was insufficient. Now, Icahn was ultimately paid off to go away, and he made a pretty tidy $15 million in less than a year on his Simplicity stake. And now it's 1982. NCC now controls Simplicity with just a 20% ownership stake. And they quickly made motions to siphon off the cash from Simplicity for the benefit of NCC 
And this is a big corporate governance no-no. And Simplicity shareholders quickly filed suit and judge quickly agreed with the shareholders and NCC was forced to sell its Simplicity stake. And they sold to a man by the name of Michael Hurwitz, who was chairman and founder of MCO Holdings. And two years later, Hurwitz sells his Simplicity stake to J.B. Fuqua's Triton Holdings. And yes, this is the same Fuqua that whose name now adorns Duke's business school. Fuqua held on to it for four years and sold it again in 1988 to yet another investor. And it's at this point in time in the late 80s that Simplicity's market share had declined from its dominant 50% now to 32%. And now's the time to discuss why would they have lost so much market share (laughs) during this period of time? Were they distracted by things going on? This is a tongue-in-cheek question, guys. <laughs> you know. yeah, cer- certainly uh, distracted, but I mean, they obviously forgot the most important thing, which was what made the company so successful in the first place, the relationship with the retailers that were helping sell the product. You also have those secular trends of you know, more women joining the workforce. And so you have households going from one income to two incomes, They're less concerned maybe with the cost savings of making their own clothing. They also have more money to spend on clothing at stores that now is maybe also much more higher quality compared to decades past. That's definitely another point that we forgot to mention. In addition to the change of fashion, I think for sure clothing became higher quality and we were at this point outsourcing more and more of clothing manufacturing to other countries, cheaper countries. Right. Yes. So you have both both the price differential and the quality differential kind of closing, which really degrades simplicity's value proposition at the end of the day. Yeah. And I think this is kind of relevant to today's environment where you see a lot of a lot of commentary about, say, consumer staples companies taking price and how far can they push their consumers and pass on those costs. And I can only assume in simplicity's case that they were continuing to push the the cost lever to their clients, but then maybe not providing the same level of value. And so that started to erode their customer loyalty. It's just, it's one of those things that I think in apparel, generally in some kind of markets, customer tastes are not as long lasting as they are in other areas. And so people are more willing to switch once that value proposition is eroded where the price starts to exceed the value offered. Right. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, They were starting to push price too aggressively, probably when they should not have. And and I think it also comes back to the fact that they could not find a productive way to use all the cash on their balance sheet. So, you know, eventually this attracts the attention of other investors who think they can invest that capital more wisely and just kind of became one of the one of the trading sardines, so to speak. Uh, very pe- the company was passed on to various people trying to take the cash and invest it in other things. And with the debt load that brought along when it was acquired several times, you know what what are you going to do when you have a high debt load? You're going to push price and cut costs probably too aggressively on both things. And I think that's a those are all those are all explanations for why it lost so much market share in the 80s. I was going to ask real quick, Doug, do we have any data on any new entrants that came in during that period? Or was it pretty much the same players? 
Were they losing? It was pretty much the or... same players. I had I had saw no new entrants during this time period. It was the same same big four pattern makers. But another thing that we forgot to mention, one little anecdote, is that McCall had entered bankruptcy protection during this time in the 80s. And it was also lowering its prices pretty aggressively because it was afforded bankruptcy protection. It could do that. And that also hammered the market share of simplicity. Um, So where are they now? To hit the fast forward button again, Simplicity and its and its big three competitors changed hands multiple times during 2000 to 2020. Uh, a company by the name of Conso acquired Simplicity in 1998, and then in 2000, it attempted to acquire McCall. But the FTC prevented that from happening, saying the resulting company would control 72% of the paper pattern market. This then allowed a merger between all three of Simplicity's major competitors. McCall acquired Butterick and Vogue in 2001, which resulted in a company that controlled just 53% of the market. And then in 2013, a company by the name of CSS acquired the company that owned McCall, Butterick, and Vogue. And then in 2017, it would acquire Simplicity. Somehow there was zero pushback from the FTC, even though one company now basically has a monopoly on the entire paper pattern market. (laughs) And that's where we end the story of simplicity in the paper pattern industry. So summing up, we've got a handful of lessons that we learned or that were reinforced for us. And I'll let you guys fight to see who goes first. (laughs) Well, I guess I'll take a stab at it, Doug. And so... Having studied the Nifty 50 in the past and kind of always interested in these periods where the market gets a little bit crazy with growth prospects, it's it's interesting. Professor Jeremy Siegel, back in the late 90s, he had put together a table about the Nifty 50 and, and looked at some of the companies there, McDonald's, Bristol, Simplicity, and so on, and looked at the price-to-earnings ratio that they traded at in 1972, which was, I think, close to the peak, if not the peak, and then subsequent earnings growth, and then what their actual PE ratio should have been relative to subsequent fundamentals. And so you look at a company like Bristol Myers, which we mentioned traded around 25 times earnings back in 1972 and grew earnings at almost 13% a year through the late 90s. And at that point, Professor Siegel estimated that they should have traded at 50 times earnings in 1972. But they were actually undervalued by the market, which probably would have seemed crazy to the people at the time. Conversely, Simplicity Patterns, which was at 50 times earnings, probably should have been valued closer to 8.7 times earnings, which was probably close to where they ended up at their trough market value a couple of years later. So the market did kind of sniff that one out. So eventually the market does get it right, I think is is one lesson. It's just very hard to do in real time when you're looking at a stock and decide if it's overvalued or undervalued. That's, that's very, very difficult for ind- investors to do. And I guess Secondly, when you look at consumer behavior, I think JP Morgan did a study a few years ago about different sectors within the S&P and consumer discretionary was one of the more volatile as far as like new companies, exiting companies, uh, catastrophic losses that were never subsequently recovered. 
for me, it's just another indication that in a somewhat of a discretionary area of the market, consumer tastes are very quick to shift. And companies that cater to that, they, they just move at a different pace. The, the churn rate seems to be quite a bit more than healthcare staples, obviously utilities. So it's, it's maybe a cautionary tale not to get too excited or at least always to, to keep healthy skepticism about valuations in that sector of the market. Yeah, but it would it would be very hard to do knowing that Simplicity had grown revenues nearly every single year since its founding. And you know, the 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 founders James and Joseph Shapiro both touted the recession resistance of the company and you know if times were bad people would economize and purchase more paper patterns and do more home sewing and making clothes at home. So would would you have would you have described it as a discretionary purchase from the beginning, Larry, or um, really dic- uh, dictated you know, the fortunes of the company dictated by the whims of fashion? I think with the benefit of hindsight, it's it's easy to say that it ended it started as the former and ended up as as the latter. So, and and of course we say that the company grew earnings every year, but they eventually got to that fifty percent market share. After which I think it's pretty hard to grow if the industry itself is not growing. I mean, there's only so much share you can take intra industry. So you know, you look at Bristol Myers and their bid to take it over, and it's kind of hard to think like, wow, this company is growing at twenty percent year after year. You know what they really need is a pharmaceutical company to help them do even better. You know, I mean, that just doesn't make any sense to me. But of course, that was the logic of the market back in the day. So I mean, it's it's obviously easy for for us to pass judgment knowing what we know fifty years later. But I think it's it's for me personally, it would have been kind of hard to digest, but. Who knows? I mean, it, it's we've seen a lot of things come and go in the last twenty years. It seemed like they would be around forever. So who's to say? Yeah. Well, I, I want to keep picking at this idea. I mean, what what separated Simplicity from other kind of more staple like companies? I mean, you guys know tobacco really well, and kind of the consumer packaged goods companies that have you know existed for hundreds of years. What's the difference between them and Simplicity's product? Is it is it that simplicity had a product that there were there were better alternatives eventually in terms of just store bought clothes, ready made clothes, so to speak, or is it or is it really just demographics change? Like if if women had never entered the the workforce, would they be still buying simplicity patterns at home for themselves and uh, making clothes for their kids? I'll let Devin go here in a second, but since since we're kind of pushing back and forth on this idea. It is interesting because you look at staples themselves and you have different categories. And of course, we could talk forever about this, but something like caffeine, where uh, originally it was something that you consume through coffee and then soda and now energy drinks. Nicotine was something that was through chew and, and pipes and cigars and then cigarettes primarily and now uh, perhaps through vaping and uh, modern oral, as they call the new nicotine pouches and so on. So the evolution of taste in those consumable categories tends to be at a very slow pace, at least as I recognize it. But even so, there are shifting tastes within consumer habits. I, I think of what happened in the 50s and 60s with whiskey, when all of a sudden people wanted to drink vodka because it didn't leave any sort of scent on your breath, because that was when 
public intoxication and drunk driving became a thing. So like almost overnight, whiskey was threatened by these, what do they call it, white liquors, I think. So that's an instance where where one stable category was almost disrupted by a, a competing entrance within the same category. So, you know, it is too easy or maybe lazy to think that one side is entirely stable and the other side is volatile. But I guess one other thing is when you do have those demographic shifts, it does seem like it has a bigger, more immediate impact on things like apparel, fashion, however you want to characterize it. I think I'd have to agree. Anything associated with fashion or changing consumer tastes could be more at, more at risk and deserves more scrutiny, even, even though it like simplicity had done so well for so many decades and decades. Yeah. I'm sure that if we, if we thought about it, we could come up with some other instances where something like this has, has happened and maybe that would be a good subject for a subsequent podcast. Yeah. A good reminder that really on a long enough timeline, you know, everything kind of goes to zero or no trend lasts forever. If you look at the multiple decades of rather rapid growth for simplicity. You know, with hindsight, we can see it was foolish to continue to extrapolate that. But at the time, it seemed so straightforward. But now we see that it wasn't just simplicity competing against other pattern makers. It was really competing against all other ways to attain a critical need, which was clothing. And so as store-bought products improved in quality, and those brands be able to were able to build that brand affinity, the brand equity that Simplicity had built degraded and it couldn't re- really recover. And so, sure, even if it tried to manage and if it was successful in maintaining its market share, that likely wouldn't have been enough to stave off what had happened to it. And it leads me to thinking about just industry structure. And I know Lawrence has written a few excellent pieces on optimal industry structure. If you have too many competitors, you obviously have a commodification of the product in general and pricing wars and a race to the bottom. And that certainly isn't good for excess profits. And if you have too few, what can happen sometimes is that the companies become very obsessed over taking share from one another instead of what should be the key focus, which is serving their end consumer. Fighting over market share makes no guarantee of creating value for the company or shareholders and can often destroy value. And in this specific case, we saw McCall under the hood of bankruptcy, initiating that price war, taking share and acting somewhat irrationally in terms of optimal pricing, most likely. I think of two more recent instances, and Doug, you're the expert, so maybe you can correct me, but I think of Blockbuster, a video, and Bed Bath & Beyond. So in Blockbuster's case, you had a, I would guess, an economically resistant business model. I mean what's cheaper entertainment than running a video and getting some popcorn. And it was a a concept that kind of consolidated a very fractious or fragmented, I should say, industry. And uh, it wasn't that people stopped watching movies. It's just that they changed in how they consumed it, how it got into their homes. And their failure to adapt uh, is a little bit like simplicity. 
And Bed Bath & Beyond was a, a company that survived the great financial crisis. They had uh, not much debt at that point. They benefited from, I think, linens and things going under. And then 12, 13 years later, whatever it is, they're gone because of a failure to adapt to more uh, willingness on the part of consumers to shop online. So it's it's it, we look back. What could Simplicity have done with all of that cash on their balance sheet, other than just distribute it and you know hope that you're not the last shareholder without a chair when the music stops? Or would they go out and and say recognize that this whole landscape is changing? Maybe we need to make an acquisition. You know, you think of subsequent fashion trends with tennis shoes, which I don't think was much of a thing in the 70s, not really kind of took off in the 80s and 90s. You know, how could they have adapted and evolved for changing apparel tastes in the 80s and 90s and so on? And maybe it's just too difficult a question to answer. I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I like your blockbuster example. I think that's pretty appropriate um, for simplicity. I, I see both companies having failed to adapt. It's not that consumer desired less entertainment or consumers desired less clothing. It's just the the way they consumed both changed. You know, one due to tech. Well, I think probably both due to technology, but more so with simplicity changing in demographics of its end users. So I, I really like that example. But let's let's can we talk a little bit about how does one manage a slowly shrinking business? I thought given your guys' expertise in the tobacco industry, is that the way simplicity should have been managed? Slowly shrink the share count, heavy dividends, and just manage a glide path as best they could? Uh, probably it would have been better suited for a private company than a public one, especially since being public, of course, opened themselves up to raiders and people who did not have the long-term interests of the company in mind. They really just wanted access to that cash reserve. So I guess that's one lesson is is uh, it might be better off to be private than public if you're in a slowly declining industry. But it's it's also just something where you're probably going to have to consider that it's not just the immediate industry that you have to contend with, your immediate competitors, I should say. It's also what's the opportunity set out there? What could you have done differently to evolve? And there, I think there are other examples, too, of some industrials that isn't Roper an example of a company that this it started as an industrial and now it owns software companies? I mean, they they made a 180-degree pivot almost. So, you know, there are examples of companies that pulled it off. Yeah, but they are few and far between. Roper is a good example. Tyler Technologies also made a, a pivot in the mid-90s. Tyler had also took advantage of the conglomerate phase of the in investment markets in the 70s and 80s. And the guy who had been running Tyler, he made the decision that things are too frothy and now it was time to sell a lot of the things that he had acquired over the years. And that's what he wound up doing. And eventually they got down to one or two industries and then just a huge cash pile on the balance sheet. And the board of directors were able to find someone to reinvest that cash in the industry that they chose was uh, software solutions for local and municipal governments. So, I mean, that's just one additional story to Roper, but those things rarely happen. Yeah, successfully. Yeah. 
they may be the exception that proved the rule. Yeah, sir, definitely some survivorship bias there yeah. in, in that route. And you know, going back to the comparison to the tobacco industry, there are some clear comparisons. Obviously, there is this big shift in the pattern market from secular growth to now a perpetual decline. And both were very capital light, right? And the big difference, though, when looking at this company to something like, say, the largest tobacco companies that are publicly traded, one of the, I would say, hallmark features of the tobacco industry is historically, over the last few decades, trading at rather depressed multiples, allowing rather advantaged share repurchases. Whereas if you look at Simplicity, when they were amassing all of that cash on their balance sheet, trading at 35 times, 45 times, 60 times earnings... I'm not sure shareholders would have benefited from a large share repurchase. Definitely not. But I would have thought that James Shapiro, the CEO at the time, who was already pretty wealthy because they, I mean, even though they had sold out way too early in 1950, I'm sure he still had some cash and could have affected a management buyout of the company in the late 70s rather than suffer through all the corporate raiders and takeover artists that were trying to siphon off the cash from the company and, or reinvest it themselves at their direction. A lot of pain could have been avoided if someone had been a little more entrepreneurial, if they had a little more skin in the game, perhaps. It's, it's really tough. It's really tough when your CEO doesn't like forming budgets for the business. Close us off. I think it would be good to transition to none of this was guaranteed to happen. What really struck me the most doing all this research and doing all this prep is being able to see the entire arc of, of this specific industry beginning in the 1860s and still going on today. We saw Butterick start out as the dominant uh, industry competitor and they went bankrupt in 1936 just nine years after Simplicity was founded. And it's then Simplicity who became the behemoth of the industry. Fast forward to the 70s and 80s, the, the entire industry starts to shrink due to demographics and social changes. And then McCall goes bankrupt in 1988 and, and Simplicity nearly went under as well because it had a hefty deft load after being acquired one or two times. And now, today, the entire industry is consolidated under one company. But there's a great, great counterexample in, in Butterick itself again. You know, the, the one that started the industry went bankrupt in the Great Depression, and it eventually found its way into the arms of American Can Company. They had been acquired. And eventually, in 1983, so it was just an insignificant little division of American Can. And so Butterick's CEO at the time, William Wilson, he led a management buyout of Butterick. So Wilson put together his money along with several other managers, and they paid $12.5 million for Butterick. And here's the crazy thing. He borrowed $12 million of debt and put down just half a million in equity to make that purchase. And even crazier, they cut some costs, of course, but they also used those savings to invest in new machines and computer systems. They increased their speed to market, and then they went after the low end of the market and took advantage of the weakness at Simplicity. And Wilson and his other managers were able to pay off that $12 million loan in 1985 just two years later, which is just incredible. But anyways, Wilson sold in 1989, 60% of Butterick 
to Robert Bass's Acadia Investors for 90 million, making a 10x return. So that could have happened for simplicity if the right owners were at the helm. And you know, again, it's just interesting to see the whole ups and downs of the industry and also the industry staying with just really four big major players till today. It's just one company and four brands. One little interesting nut on that is kind of this pushback about a great business and a great price. What's the old Buffett thing saying that there's, you know, a wonderful business at a good price or whatever that whole thing is, that simplicity at 50 times earnings was a good business at a fantastic price from the seller standpoint. But you know, it really had to make money and work out for the investors when it was at a depressed price. So I guess, you know, at that point, it would not have looked like a quality business, but, you know, was maybe one of those unloved, distressed bets that ended up paying off because they pushed the right levers and worked out. So there's probably an investment lesson there. Speaking of Buffett, I mean, you brought him up. How did he start with Berkshire Hathaway? Oh yeah, cash generating true. business in a declining industry. Yeah, I, I still think back and wonder why why none of the textile businesses were interested in getting into patterns because it seems so straightforward and synergistic with trying to sell those volumes. Something else, you know, floating around in my head that I can't shake is looking back to 1973 when the share price fell 90 percent. The Highest price for the year was $38. It fell to $613. So it went from 64 times earnings in 74 to 10.3 times. I, I do wonder, without the aid of hindsight, how many people now in that position looking at the company at the time would be looking at it and go, hey, if this thing just mean reverts, I'm going to make a killing. And they're not really understanding the dynamics, the changing market, the big shift and you know what would become a secular decline that this company would be unable to manage. I think after a company is several years in a row of declining revenues, I don't think most people are going to think it's going to mean revert to anything meaningful. Well, and I think to Devin's point too, I mean, you look at that nasty bear market in 1974 and 10 times earnings for that company, probably, I mean, there were any number of different high quality stocks trading at depressed valuation. So maybe it got lost in the shuffle and it really took somebody who was on the prowl for some kind of unique distress situation to turn over the enough rocks to get there, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, so in, in 1974, I mean, that was the first year that their year over year revenue was down. So I think some people could have looked at it and say, hey, may- this is just a blip in the long-term growth trajectory, right? Who knows? I'm sure there are a bunch of unlucky shareholders who thought that. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode, head over to preferredsharespodcast.com. On the site, there's a full list of resources and additional data for you to dig into. And on the site, you can subscribe to the podcast directly so all future episodes land directly in your inbox. If you want to support Preferred Shares, the single most helpful thing you can do is to spread the word. Share Preferred Shares with others who love business history as much as you and we do.